0: Hello welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. For today's episode, I am sharing a conversation I had with Tim Desmond. Tim is a student of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a psychotherapist and author. His books include Self-Compassion and Psychotherapy and the Self-Compassion Skills Workbook. And he has a book coming out next year with HarperCollins, How to Stay Human in an f Up World. He is the co-founder of Morning Sun Mindfulness Center and a distinguished faculty scholar at Antioch University, New England. For this episode, we talk about self-compassion and its relationship to social activism and showing compassion for others. We talk about how we can talk to our children about things like self-compassion and social activism. And we talk about the power of self-disclosure, both as therapists ourselves, but also how self-disclosure can be a very powerful tool in parenting as well. If you are enjoying the episodes of Holding Space Podcast, a great way to show your support and keep us going us it's just me over here is to subscribe and leave a review. I would really appreciate that level of support. I am so excited to share this conversation with all of you, so let's get to it. You're listening to Holding Space Podcast with Dr. Cassidy Freitas, licensed marriage and family therapist. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, let's jump in. Tim, Desmond, thank you so much for taking the time to record this episode with me today.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to be here.
0: So if you could share with me and with the audience a little bit about your background, what brought you to the field of becoming a therapist, but what brought you to being interested in self-compassion and mindfulness in the way that you are?
1: Yeah, it's funny. It's more like my interest in meditation brought me into the field of psychology. Um, Um, When I was, so I grew up in Boston, um, uh, with a single mom who was um, an alcoholic, ended up in, you know, was in AA for a good amount of my childhood. But we, we were pretty poor a lot of the time that I grew up. Um, We were homeless for a little while when I was a teenager. Um, And by the time I got to college, I had a lot of like anxiety, a lot of, you know, like I had a hard time connecting with people, a lot of anger. And, It was actually in a political science class that I was assigned to read a book by Thich Nhat Hanh uh, called Pieces Every Step. And when I read that book, I recognized that mindfulness and compassion were exactly what was missing from my life and what I needed more than Mm -hmm. anything. And so as, you know, 19-year-olds sometimes do when they are exposed to something that really makes sense to them, I completely immersed myself in... um, in those practices and in the study of meditation. And I would just uh, follow Thich Nhat Hanh around. I would, you know, go to whatever center he was teaching at. And for the next, you know, for, for, you know, all through my 20s, my my whole focus was learning as much as I can about developing mindfulness and compassion in me, really as kind of a, an sort of an, an antidote to some of the transmissions that I had received growing up. And then it got to the point where I realized that I you know, needed to figure out some way to earn money. And clinical psychology was the closest parallel that I could find. It was basically about getting paid for uh, practicing and teaching mindfulness.
0: Wow. So it really came for you out of need, out of yeah. out of a need for for healing and for as you said an antidote to some of the experiences and transmissions that you had had yourself growing up.
1: Yeah, yeah, it did.
0: Have you found that because of your own experiences, whether it's through childhood or more recent experiences, because I find that as, 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 a therapist myself, right. And also as a researcher and a writer, if I don't have my own like personal things that, that bring the like energy and the passion and sometimes like the need, like I need to research this because I want to know the answers like yeah. for the larger community, but for myself as well. Ha- have you found that those, those personal experiences have brought that, that fire, that energy, that passion to your work?
1: Yeah, I mean, what we want is just to feel really alive and to feel connected with ourselves and what we're doing. And we want to feel like, yeah, we we just want to feel connected with with what's happening in our lives. And so being motivated by what feels like the most important thing to me is going to be the, you know, know, if I can make that, the driving force in my career and in kind of whatever I'm doing, then I'm going to be able to bring my full self mm. to that. And, and otherwise I'm going to show up as, you know, only part of a person and I'm not going to be as effective and I'm certainly not going to be as happy.
0: I, I One thing I've really appreciated about your work and following your work is your your ability and willingness to show up as yourself, as a human being, I sometimes find in our field, and I think there's just a lot of discourse around the work that we do that often is um, you keep yourself outside the room, right? Like you, Mm -hmm. like we, you know, there's that, the the old ideas of like showing up as a blank slate or any of those things, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I find that as a therapist, when we can show up in conversation and as a, as a as a human being, right, who has had our mm-hmm. own experiences, and there's always like that fine line, right, of like how do we do that and how do we do that appropriately um, yeah. with clients and um, while still holding space for them. But I've just really appreciated your willingness to enlarge your wellness conversations and dialogue, show up as yourself, right, yeah. and yeah. show up as a person who has also experienced suffering and pain, because. That is the most universal human experience
1: that that's, that's what I've found helpful for me the The people that I find myself um, drawn to and the people that I find really are able to kind of share something that benefits me or the people that are willing to be more transparent. There's a lot of research that I won't go into right now, but actually um, appropriate disclosure
2: yeah. is
1: might be the only quality of psychotherapy that's been shown to have a causal not just a correlational relationship with positive outcome yeah um and i I, you know for people who are interested in that you can kind of uh, look into it but that yeah that as a as a therapist what we're really doing is is just what we have to offer is all of our experiences and our, our formal training is part of that, but it's if that's all you have to offer you're not going to be that helpful like your your you're, your full humanity is going to be a l- lot more beneficial to the people that you're working with
0: mm. you know I just had a session last week where I was in that session I felt called to say, "Can I speak to you as another mother as a mother to to you as a mother?" And she was like, she looked at me, and she was just like, "Please, yes, like that's," and yeah. it it was one of the most profound and powerful sessions that she and I have ever had because I I allowed myself to say, "I'm gonna show up like as yeah. as an as a human being right now, right?" Yeah. Um, as somebody who has also experienced some of the pain and suffering that can come within motherhood. Um, yeah. I don't know. It was, it was really profound and powerful for, for both of us, right? Like I was transformed as, as she was as well, you know, and it was just such a, I don't know. So I've just, I, I've, I actually have not seen that research, but now I'm interested. Yeah. So after this, I'm going to be hopping on and looking more at that. Maybe you can send me some of yeah. those articles because that, that is so fascinating. And I, I believe it because I've seen it and felt it in session.
1: Well, it really, really uh, most of the data that we have about positive outcome in psychotherapy is correlational. It's yeah. just like, what are the things that are correlated? And we don't know if they actually cause it, or if maybe those kind of factors are caused by therapy going well. There's one study that asked therapists, do you believe that disclosure is helpful, harmful, or do you not know? Mm-hmm. And every therapist that said, I think disclosure is helpful, they kicked him out of the study. Everybody who said it was harmful, they kicked them out of the study, and they only went with therapists that said, "I don't know if it's helpful or not." Ah. <laughs> and then they said, "Well, what I'd like for you to do is, with half of your clients, when it's appropriate, disclose about yourself, and with the other half, don't." Mm. And they found an unequivocal, like statistically significant improvement when therapists. Um, did that. Now, you usually can't manipulate variables because you can't find a therapist that's able, th- that would be actually, you know, say, I think, you know, being compassionate, I don't know if that's going to be helpful with my, ther- with, with my clients. They're not willing to actually do, be less compassionate with yeah. some of their clients. Yeah. But with this one, they were actually able to, to manipulate the, the variable and show a causal relationship.
0: Wow. I, I know that that for the podcast, there is a, a big portion of the audience is therapists. So I actually love that we just went there right now, because yeah, yeah. I think that there's just there's such strong narrative around what disclosure, um, the like, the, like the, the danger of disclosure. You know, I think that was that was the big narrative in at least my training. Right. Like the legal, ethical classes, like just yeah. being very careful and to the point where it almost scares you as a therapist to Disclosing it all, but then that can also block showing up as a human in the room, right? And
1: it's the same as being a parent. Yeah, you know, okay. it, it, we we can have the same fears of actually being transparent to our children.
0: Mm. Yeah, um,
1: and and it's and and yet it's the same thing. It's like, what do I want to teach my? So I have a five year old son. What do I want to teach him? Do I want to teach him that? conflict is not something that happens. Mm. And uh, insecurity, confusion, th- those don't happen. So you don't need to worry about them. Yeah. Or, or they just happen to you. And by the time you're an adult, they don't happen anymore. Or do I want to teach them? Do I want to teach my son that I feel confused? I feel insecure. I, ha- I, I get in the conflict. I get frustrated. And this is what I do. this is what i've learned to do when that part of life happens and this is where i'm at in my process with that that I still have more to learn but i've but i've learned things that i'd like that that i've that I've found are helpful and that I can share with you
0: right I mean same thing goes for i mean to what you're speaking to make mistakes right so yeah. as a parent, yeah. if I screw up and i you know, lose my cool or, you know, for me to then come back to my daughter and my son and to say, Hey, I was wrong there. But the same yeah. thing with clients, like,
2: yeah,
0: I mean, I think there, there were so many times, especially early on in my career where I just like, I just dropped the ball in session. Right. Like yeah. I didn't, I didn't show up with, I didn't follow up. I didn't ask the hard question or, or, or I went or I moved too quickly. Right. But the idea of like coming back the next session saying, Hey, you know what? I don't, I don't think that I handled that right. Like I would have never done that because, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my credibility. (laughs) But, but now I, oh, I just, I really hear what you're saying because the same thing goes for in the therapy room. Like if I can actually show up and say, I don't, you know what, in our last session, I think I dropped the ball there or I'm, I'm sorry. Or Mm -hmm. is this working out? Like is, is the, am I the right fit? Am I the right fit? It's okay for it to not be because I'm showing up as a human and actually showing you in that moment that like perfection is actually not what is ever expected here. Um, Oh, I really, yeah, that's so true.
1: And I, that's something that I wish people would do more in our field. The, the, the data the data seems to point to the the fact that even the absolute best therapists in our field are able to make um, significant progress with 75% of their clients,
2: mm.
1: which means that even if you are one of the best therapists in the country, one in four of your clients aren't going to really get better at all. Yeah. And so we need to kind of recognize like that is the ceiling that we're working with. You aren't... Um, you don't have infinite power as a therapist. You're a human being who yeah. wants to help. So humbling. And you're you're <laughs> not going to be the right fit for everybody. Right. And so, yeah, to be able to kind of recognize that and and uh, the researcher Barry Duncan talks about failing successfully. Mm-hmm. And I really like that term. Um, <laughs> I
0: love that term. You know, I I want I want to aim to fail successfully every day. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: I I love that. So Speaking of human suffering being a universal experience, therapists included, you know, I find that it's easy to look around and see all the pain and suffering in the world. And the pain and suffering has all, this is no different from always, right? Like there's always been pain and suffering. But, you know, right now we have so much access to the world, which is beautiful, but it's also makes it very apparent how much pain and suffering is happening. And it's, it's easy for myself sometimes to see it and to look around and to find those like infinite reasons to suffer and then to feel either frozen or helpless or just like consumed by all the pain and suffering in the world.
2: Yeah.
0: And I'm curious to hear from you. Um, your thoughts on how do we move from that feeling of like helplessness to compassion and then even taking it one step further to possible to activism, right? Like does yeah. compassion and activism here have like, is there a stepping stone? Do they have a relationship? I would love to hear your thoughts on this.
1: Yeah. What you're talking about right now is about how we can how, how we can relate to suffering in ourselves and in the world and I feel like that that for me is like the core question in my life and that is the question for relating for, for how I want to relate to myself for how I want to relate um, as a mental health practitioner and as a, you know a citizen in the world mm-hmm. um, we're aware of suffering and, and there's a lot of ways that we can end up being kind of overwhelmed by it. So one, we can, if, if, uh, if we're not able, if we don't have the, the capacity to be present with suffering without getting overwhelmed, if we don't have that capacity in ourselves, we might end up in despair. Mm-hmm. Feeling helpless and just kind of hopeless about the world, um, we might end up. And another term that I really like uh, was created by the the writer and activist Starhawk. It, is we can also end up in something called toxic righteousness,
2: mm.
1: which is basically like you're just you're inches from despair, but you're kind of just hanging on. Um, and you're you're uh, and in toxic righteousness, you are so sure that your view is right and that other people are wrong. You have no interest in listening to them, you have no interest in connecting with their humanity. but you and and generally, the more problems, the more news that you feed yourself, the more of that, it's it's a form of righteousness that that dehumanizes us mm-hmm. and dehumanizes other people. Yeah. So that's a, that's another direction that we can kind of see in ourselves. Yeah. So there can be hopelessness. There can be this kind of toxic righteousness, um, and then there can be just sort of escaping into privilege. Mm-hmm and uh, basically saying, I don't want to know about the suffering in the world because I can protect myself from it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: What I want to offer is that there's another option, and it's the option of growing and developing your ability to be present with suffering in in a special way that allows you to to pay attention and care without being harmed by it and that might almost sound like it's impossible but if it sounds like it's impossible it's because we all have a we all have a limited ability to do that nobody has an unlimited ability to face suffering without being harmed by it but it's a capacity that we can grow to and and one of the best ways to grow it is Learning how to relate differently to my own suffering, yes. and as I can do that, then the suffering that's out in the world, in the people I love, or or politically, it, it get uh, it, it sort of it gets easier to actually be present in that way um, when I've learned how to do it for myself. Mm-hmm. Is that is that kind of like yeah. uh, I feel like I have partially answered your question. No, no.
0: I could, I could go off on a, I have like a million follow-up questions. I could go off on a million other tangents because it just, it's, it's resonating with my own experience, right? Like I have had my moments where it's hard to admit it, but like that, that righteousness, right? Where it's like, I, I have my, my beliefs and I see the other side and there is a, dehumanizing thing that happens in that space and then, and, and then anger, like there's an, like, there's anger, right. And then through the anger, instead of like using that as sort of like a catalyst to now dehumanizing this other side, I've been there. <laughs> I've been in the helplessness and I have caught myself in, in the comfort of privilege, right. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah. I, I'm I'm going to turn it off now. And because I just, I can't, I can't anymore. I need to, you know, sleep tonight. Yeah. And and then, and then I think what also happens is sometimes is when I catch myself in that, and then I say, oh, there's privilege. Like I get to say no more because it's not my life. I'm not living it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and then that can be a slippery slope into shame. Right. Sure. All of a sudden now I feel like there's something wrong with me that I would even do that. But then, but then, But then if I just – if I don't give my – if I don't have some space, right, to, like, show myself compassion, then it's really easy to get really sucked into it to the point where I'm in despair or I'm not even able to do anything because I'm just consumed by it. So, no, everything you just described, I mean, it speaks to my my lived experiences. Um,
1: So I guess what I want to say there, like, in terms of, like, the practice then – It's not that I want to constantly be feeding myself all of the worst news in the world. It's that instead what I want to make sure that I'm doing or or that somehow it's bad or shameful to sort of take a break. Mm. But instead that what I want to be able to say is that I am making a good faith effort to develop this capacity in me. And part, and the first step of developing this capacity in me is recognizing, is getting to know my own tolerance level and being able to find the right balance of paying attention to what creates joy in me and paying attention to the suffering in the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Those things are both true. There's a lot of beauty in the world. And there's a lot of suffering in the world, and where I focus my attention, I want to find the right balance that allows me. It's sort of like if you're exercising, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's not like, um, well, you know, I can't lift 500 pounds, so I just shouldn't exercise. Right. Right. Instead, what we want to do is be like, okay, well, what can I do? Like, what can I be present with? And I don't want to overwhelm myself, but I want to make sure that I'm making incremental progress and that, that I'm sort of taking this as a kind of a, a good faith practice that I want to I would like to develop my ability to be present with more suffering than I can right now.
2: all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash try. Go to Shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify dot com slash try.
0: I've heard I've heard you describe this metaphor before of of holding a crying baby. And as you were talking right now, you were you were talking about being able to be, being with pain and suffering while also being connected to the things that bring you joy. And it comes like there's this little tension sometimes in that. And I, having two children myself, having been in that space before, right, where I have, where I'm holding a crying baby. Yeah. Yeah. And things are being pulled inside of me that hurt because it's it feels I'm suffering in that moment. Like my baby is suffering and I want to make it better. And I choose to stay in it because I'm also connected to the part of me that feels attached and finds joy in this crying child and baby that I'm holding. I don't know. Yeah. Is this, does this, does this metaphor connect at all to what sure. you're describing right now?
1: Yeah. B- because basically the, that, that next step sort of the first step is making sure that I'm, I'm only exposing myself to a, the amount of suffering that I can tolerate. And then the next step is how am I going to relate to that? Hmm. When it's, when I, when it does come time, when, you know, when, when my child is suffering, the first thing that i want to be aware of is that the problem isn't necessarily that my child is suffering the difficulty in that moment is that seeing my child suffer makes me suffer mm. yes that and, and and that's the limiting factor um because if i weren't so triggered by my child's I could be present for them in a much more helpful way. I would actually be able to be a resource for them as opposed to, I remember um, when I was young, I, uh, I, I was riding my bike down, uh, down the street in Boston where I grew up. I was hit by a car. And I remember my mother running down the street, you know, neighbors told her and she ran down the street. And I remember I was lying on the the sidewalk. I just, you know, I I, I had a knee injury, but other than that, I was fine. But I was lying on the street waiting for the ambulance. And I remember as like an eight year old trying to calm my mother down. Um, Cause she was way more upset about this than I was. Yeah. And and that's an example of something that I, that I know that I can do with my son that I mean, no, I'm ne- I would never tell somebody you shouldn't be upset by your child suffering. But what I can say is that the more upset you are to see your child suffer, the less you're going to be a resource for them in that moment, the less you're actually going to be helpful. Yeah. But instead of saying, I, I shouldn't be helpful or shaming myself, I mean, I shouldn't be upset or shaming myself. The practice that I want to offer is the exact opposite. Hmm. The practice that I want to offer in that moment, there's your baby crying. What I want you to to kind of experiment with is if you could like picture yourself like there, your child is suffering and it's hard to be there with her. What I want you to try, try out and let me know what you notice is first... You recognize, what is it about this moment that I find unacceptable? And my my guess is that it's going to be like, I don't like to see my child suffer. That's Mm -hmm. normal.
0: Yeah.
1: And then underneath that, there's a wish. And the wish is probably going to sound something like, I wish that my child never had to suffer. And I want to just allow that wish for a moment. And I want you to try saying to yourself in that moment when you're in touch with that wish, I wish my child didn't have to suffer. To be able to sort of say like, everybody has that wish and it's not going to happen every single parent has that wish somewhere in them but it's not going to happen and then the next thing that i want you to try to say to yourself is i'm glad that i have that wish i'm glad that even though it's impossible That wish in me, that desire for my child to always have what she needs, that's something that I like about myself. That that is something that's beautiful in me. Mm. So instead of saying I shouldn't be reacting that way, instead I'm looking into that reaction and I'm seeing the beauty that's in it. Mm. And in recognizing that beauty, it's changed.
0: I I love this. I feel, I feel like what what you're calling for somebody to do in that moment is to, I almost picture like taking your pain by the hand and seeing it almost as an ally in the discovery of the things that are most important to you.
1: Yeah. 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 It's beautiful. The, there, I mean, the reason that you don't want your child to suffer. You know, there's a lot of evolutionary power right. in that hope. You 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 know there's like this there's a powerful evolutionary energy in you. That's that's life. That's older than you, right? Mm-hmm. That is that's mammalian life saying, I don't want to see my child suffer. I want to see my child thrive. And to be able to see that that is, that that life in you, even though it's not, you're not going to get your way. You're glad it's there, and that you can see some beauty in it. Mm.
0: I love that. I um, I wish I could just sit with that for a little bit, <laughs> but I will. I will yeah. after we get off this podcast episode. Um, is there? So, going going with this, what well, started off as a metaphor, but now feels very real to me as, as a mother yeah. myself. Then these then our children grow up, right? Or they they get older, and I mean, not not that we're not teaching them self compassion even in those from those first moments of life, right? Like we're there are always ways in which we are showing them how to love themselves and show compassion to themselves and and compassion for others. I'm curious to hear from you as a parent yourself, right? but also somebody who does a lot of work in this area. How can we teach our children self-compassion and compassion for others? And then are there are there ways to even teach social activism at a very young age?
1: Yeah, I'm constantly in this practice of experimenting with. So I, I uh, you know, I now have a five-year-old son. In the past, I, um, I actually directed an intensive day treatment program for severely emotionally disturbed children in Oakland, California, and had a lot of experimentation there. And what what I know is with kids. You find something that works in one moment, and you're lucky if it continues to work for three months, and then you have to complete completely reimagine it. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so that that uh, I think more than anything, it's not getting attached to the particular technique, mm. but being anchored in your own confidence in your own practice in this value but i can say that right now when uh when my son and i get in some sort of a conflict or like especially when he just when he's you know when there's you know he'll 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 be in a situation where nothing that i say nothing that happens is acceptable to him (laughs) and just like everything is wrong so, one thing that we've been doing lately is um, you know I'll set a big boundary. One thing that I want to make sure is clear for him is that I don't want to I don't want to teach him that being unreasonable is the best way to get your needs met and so I want to make sure that the uh, In our culture, there can be sort of a a confusion between discipline and hostility.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And they're radically different things. Um, Although often in our culture, they go together. Mm -hmm. When I was directing that um, day treatment program for kids, what I recognized is that there were two really different cultures in the employees. I had teachers and I had therapists that were working for me. And the teachers really believed in discipline and the therapists really believed in compassion. But what was happening was that what I didn't like about the teacher's approach to discipline is that they would set a, a, a boundary with a really angry face so that they would set a boundary through expressing hostility. Mm -hmm. And we ended up having a big staff discussion and and basically talking about we want to be able to set real boundaries, but we want to be able to set them with compassion. And that insight actually came from me because I was uh, on a meditation retreat um, while I was working there and kind of recognizing that In a Zen monastery, there's an incredible amount of discipline and almost no hostility. And that recognizing that actually most adults would be able to, uh, would recognize that self-discipline is a gift. Mm. Self-discipline is something that most adults wish they had more of. So rec- so sort of naming that as something that we want to be able to give to our children
2: mm.
1: n- not because we don't accept them, but but out of generosity. Right. So so I'll set a boundary and make sure about that. But what I'll usually do with my son now uh is we'll say, Okay, so we're having a hard time uh we're having a hard time fixing this problem. And he'll say, Yeah. And I'll say, okay, I want to take a break for a second. I'm wondering if there are some sad feelings or bad feelings, if there's any feelings that are coming up in you right now that might make it kind of hard for anything to sound good. And what I want you to take a minute to do is I just want you to to look and see if there are any sad feelings or bad feelings in you and let them know that it's okay and see if you can send them some love. And let's just take a break and we'll we'll both do that. And then we'll try to solve this again after we're done. And we'll take a minute or two and sometimes we'll do it in the same room or sometimes he'll want to go off by himself. Um, just stepping out of the content into the process and, and into sort of his emotional state. And then, but the, actually a lot of the time, um, he really likes disclosure. <laughs> so what, what he likes is, uh, he, you know, he was, I think it was just yesterday he was at a, a summer camp. He was playing with a kid And there was, like, an accident, and the kid got hurt. Um, Like, you know, like, you know, like, he pushed the other kid, you know, and the kid fell down. It was an accident. Yeah. But uh, he didn't want to check in with the kid about it because he was feeling kind of embarrassed. So when I picked him up and I heard about that, it was, like, sort of like a drawn-out thing of it took him a while to be able to do it. I... um. What I started with were stories from my life about times that I really didn't want to do something, and how hard that was for me, and then how I would sort of try to take care of myself. And whether or not those turn into sort of a technique that he can apply right away, or whether those just kind of build up as a resource of stories in his life that this is a normal thing and something that you try to work with.
0: Mm.
1: Sort of either way.
0: This I mean this feels very full circle to what we were talking about in the in the very beginning of our conversation and I I'll say that with with my children as well. I'm thinking of a recent time with my daughter who is 6. Sometimes, you know, in these in these more difficult moments, it's it's hard for her for her to like to look at me and for to feel that like we, we're connected, so we can start to have these you know these conversations about the parts of her that that she's feeling and sending love towards these parts of her. But I found that if I say to her, you know what, the the same thing has happened to me before. You know what? Like, I remember when I used to feel when these things used to happen when I was a kid, and she'll look at me, like maybe she'll at that, maybe she was looking down beforehand, but she'll look up at me, and there's a curiosity and an interest there that connects us. And then she'll say, Well, what happened? And I'll tell her the story of what happened. And it almost feels like in that moment, there's like, we both begin to feel more regulated in those moments, right? Like if we're both feeling kind of activated, there's something about the sharing of a story um, that, that helps her to regulate. I don't know. Is that something that you've experienced? Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, um, and what I can say is, and then, you know, for, for listeners who have teenagers, I feel like it's even Mm -hmm. more true with teenagers because they're so, accustomed to adults not being real with them and not really feeling like they can they can trust them right and that transparency with a teenager in terms of like I've been like a, a, not in a way that it's like um, so there's there's a different there there's like a with a five year old the story can be a little more like um, I've been through this and I know the answer Mm -hmm. with a teenager. It can't. Yeah. With a teenager, you need to be a little more vulnerable. Yeah. You need to actually be willing to, to sort of say to, to be honest. I'm not saying if you actually have things that are helpful in your life, you, you should be honest and say, you know, I've, like, I know what you're going through and I found these things that are helpful, but, but not to claim more answers than you have, because that's the surest way to get a teenager to tune you out. Yeah. And to at, to at least kind of recognize of just like, you know, I've, I made a, these are the mistakes that I made in, in. That, that whatever I've learned that works for me is hard fought, mm. is not something that was just easy to, to do.
0: Right. Because they're in that space where it all feels hard.
2: You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And if you're able to share with them that I didn't just come to this wisdom and, and now telling you what you need to do because I just know, but because... I've had really hard experiences, and then opening up to that vulnerability, I imagine allows for that adolescent child to actually hear because they feel like they can connect to that,
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah i um we we lost a my my daughter's best friend um her mom died of to cancer a few years ago, and i I remember after her best friend's mom died which all of a sudden now this reality that mommies can die right yeah. um became her truth and became her reality um she was I, one morning she woke up and she told me that she'd had a nightmare that um that she had lost me right and that um she was alone and this wasn't soon after this loss um but i I remember in that moment there, there was like this tension for me. Of like I wanted to like protect her from this pain. And so there's a part of me that just wanted to like kind of like gloss over and like let's – you just need joy and happiness in your life, right? Like let's yes. just – let's just like, – di- like let's distract from this pain. Let's go do something fun and happy. But, but you know, instead – and there have been plenty of times where I've done that, right? And then had to sure, kind of come back sure. around and be like, all right, that that—that <laughs> was more just like me not wanting to like be with the pain because yeah. because in that moment, I was in pain too. I was in yeah. deep pain. Yeah. And what ended up happening is I, I shared with her, you know, I've been having a hard time sleeping and it's because I've been really, really sad and I really miss my friend. And yeah. we both ended up. Crying with each other. And there wasn't any like big lesson I could offer her in that moment or or, like this is the answer. Yeah. Because I was in pain. And I remember afterwards like questioning, like, oh, like was that, did I just like seal the deal that this is going to be like traumatic for her because now she sees me in a place of vulnerability? Um, Yeah. What I found though is that the weeks and months following that, Whenever she had questions about death, she asked me. And they were like some hard questions, like does it hurt when you die? Like yeah. do you like do you ever come back? Like mm-hmm. will will we ever see them again, right? Like hard questions that I don't always that I had to be honest, like I don't know the answer to some of these, but yeah. I I'm just so glad you're asking me. You
1: don't? <laughs> yeah. um. I
0: don't. <laughs>
1: no that the, what you taught her in that moment is that vulnerability is tolerable
0: yeah
1: what what you taught her is that it is to be able that, that it's possible now i, I want to say like sometimes it is the best thing to just to to distract
0: right oh totally sometimes I, that I sometimes
1: that's thing. like the best possible uh yeah um, option but it's also i mean this isn't going to be the last time in her life that she's facing something that is an unsolvable problem
0: yeah
1: and so what what you got to do is model for her what you've learned in your life about how to face those things and we never get to the point where we have all the answers. And the, the issue is like, if you think you're supposed to have all the answers, then you're gonna communicate to your kid that they're supposed to have all the answers. And the reality is that the, then they're always going to feel like they don't measure up.
0: Yeah.
1: But if you recognize that it's like, it's okay to not have these answers. And it's okay to, to grieve a loss without having a happy spin on it.
0: Well, Tim, I'm, I'm aware of, of the time. I, um, I would love to hear a little bit about some of the, the things that are on the horizon for you and where people yeah. can find you and the work that you're doing.
1: Sure. Um, well, I have two books that are out, uh, Self-Compassion in Psychotherapy, And the Self-Compassion Skills Workbook are both with Norton. Uh, I have a book coming out, a a, a new book coming out, um, a new book that's coming out with HarperCollins in the spring that uh, it's called How to Stay Human in a Fucked-Up World. Oh, my God. That's kind of about a lot of what we're talking about um you can see sort of a little taste of that i did a talk at google recently and sort of talked about some of those issues
0: i watched that talk so i will i'll link it in the podcast notes
1: yeah and um yeah and i'm actually right now um working with a a team at google and just um uh looking at ways to be able to to make these practices and and um and just sort of like empathy more available to more people. But but yeah, the, the book coming out next year and, and that Google Talk are probably the best way to, to learn more.
0: Thank you, Tim, so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Holding Space Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information that was shared in this episode. If you did, you might want to subscribe and be the first to hear about future episodes as soon as they air. Thank you so much for sharing this space with me. Have a great day.